Well, I don't know if you uh, felt it last night, but around 8 o'clock, the city of Spokane erupted into joy. Right, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are not big sports ball fans, and you're like, what are you talking about? Um, so the... <laughs> I said that on purpose. It was intentionally funny instead of accidentally funny, like I normally am. Okay. Um, so at 8 o'clock last night, right, it was overtime. Gonzaga in the final four against the dreaded UCLA team that took them out back in 2006. And it was this moment where it's overtime. Gonzaga's ahead by two. The person lost the, they, they missed the shot. There's only seconds left. And they somehow got their own rebound. The player from UCLA put it back, tied the game. And everyone's feeling, it's like an emotional roller coaster, right? There's this moment of like, how are we going to do in, this, in the, uh, the second overtime? Are we going to win this game? And then Suggs, buddy Suggs, runs down the court from just past half court, throws up a perfect shot. Doesn't call bank, but it's okay. We'll let it, we'll let it slide. It goes in. He scores. Gonzaga wins. And seriously, like we were in the back of the auditorium here. We just had a worship rehearsal, and it was me and Matt and Kristen up here watching on the TV screen that's in the back of the auditorium, that game and the eruption that happened, even just with the three of us, it was like, yeah, you know, could not believe that happened. It was amazing and historical. That's the kind of play that they'll be talking about for a long time. So now, even if you're not a big sports fan, you're going to have to look it up to make sure you know that what I'm talking about. But there was this big turnaround, right? This like, oh, hope is lost. And then all of a sudden, hope restored. And as I was experiencing all those emotions and even scrolling through like the videos where people were recording their reactions at the last few moments of the game, I just thought, how appropriate to have this just moment of joy break out on the night before Easter Sunday. It just seems symbolic to me that when this kind of hope is lost, hope restored, joy breaking out moment just seemed like appropriate emotions to have when we're about to celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Jesus and the greatest turnaround um, in, in human history and in the history of the universe and what an exciting thing to celebrate. We celebrate our belief in Jesus, we celebrate the resurrection, we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead, and we always love to celebrate on this special Sunday every year. But if we're being really honest, we're not real sure what to do about the resurrection between Easter Sundays. It's like, what? we're very excited, and we feel all those emotions on, on a day like today, and we celebrate, and, and it's great. But then there's this kind of moment on Monday after the Sunday and we don't tend to give the resurrection a great deal of thought on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or a month from now. But when you read the New Testament, when you read the story of the founding of the church where, where Christianity began, began and the kind of the origin of this Christian movement, and you read the writings of the earliest, the disciples and the people who were, who were there in those early days, they never stopped talking about the resurrection. If you read the book of Acts, which tells the history of the early church, it is the point of every sermon recorded for us in the book of Acts. They talk about the resurrection constantly. And then if you begin reading, you continue the New Testament, you get to passages like 1 Peter, where we open the service with this great passage from 1 Peter that talks about how Jesus is our living hope because of the resurrection. So how can we look at the resurrection more like the days, the early days of the church, more like a resource, 
something that benefits us every single day, not just on Easter Sunday. To answer that question of how we can do that, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 22. There's a great book called Lifted, written by an author named Sam Albury, who's a British pastor. And the book is called Lifted, Experiencing the Resurrection. And he talks all about how the resurrection has significance to us and the difference it makes on our day-to-day life. And he says in the beginning of that book that there's two kind of responses that people tend to have to the resurrection. If you're a non-Christian, if you're someone who doesn't believe the way we believe and you're here in person because it's Easter Sunday or you're watching online, you probably doubt the credibility of the resurrection. You doubt maybe that miracles like that happen. But for Christians, we sometimes doubt the relevance, and that's what I'm talking about. What difference does the resurrection make for us today? Paul, in this letter to the church at Corinth, really speaks to these good questions, the credibility and the relevance really well in these verses. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 22, and talk about both of those issues during our time together today. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The first few verses here where Paul says there was the gospel that we've been preaching, you received, it's what you stand upon now. He gives this statement of faith that many scholars believe is a creed, that that Paul is taking the words that have been used in Christian worship, and a creed is simply a summary of what Christians believe. It's it's a kind of a short statement that summarizes, here's what Christians believe, here's the belief they, they state, and they would use it in their worship time, and we believe that these words that Paul says in uh, verse 
3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures, that we believe that was a very early creed or statement of faith, probably put together within the first few months after the resurrection and used in the, in the Christian worship. And so he's saying that this is, this is what we believe, the statement of faith is what Christians believe. But more than a creed, he then goes on to offer proofs as if the people that he's writing to would be skeptical. Because I think when you hear about something like a resurrection, skeptical is not, skepticism is not a shock that someone would respond that way. And we sometimes get the impression when we think about people that lived 2,000 years ago that maybe they were more gullible than we are today. They're more likely to believe something like a resurrection. Um, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. Isn't that a great British way of putting that? Chronological snobbery. We believe that, that, that's the belief that we think people in the past are dumber. <laughs> We're dumber than we are now. Like we know we have science and we have all these things. And so we assume that people in the past, they just were more gullible. They were more simple-minded folks, kind of a little bit stupider than we are now. And that's not really, that's not fair. And that's, that's not really true, I don't think. Like, and here's what I have to say about that. People in the past knew that when people died, they stayed dead, right? That's not a surprise that like usually people die and they stay dead. They knew that. So for the people in the early days of the church to believe that, that he rose from the dead and did not stay dead, like this concept was a new idea um, for them. And it wasn't something that they even really had a context for in a lot of ways. There's this conversation recorded for us between um, Jesus and Martha. We, we sang this great song, Rise Up, talking about Lazarus rise, rising up. The story of Lazarus is recorded in John chapter 11. And Martha and Jesus are having this conversation. Martha says, if you would have been here, Jesus, he wouldn't have died. Jesus responds to her. He says, your brother will rise again. And her response is, well, yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the dead. And she, she's referring to this event that if you were a Jewish person during the time of Jesus, you either believed there would be some mass resurrection of all people who ever lived at some point in the distant future or you believe that there was no resurrection, but to believe that one person would rise from the dead was not, was not a category of thought that people tended to have during that time. But remember Jesus' response to her. So if you would have been here, he, would have, he wouldn't have died. Your brother will rise again. Yeah, I know, in the resurrection of the dead, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb and heard some pastors say that if he didn't mention Lazarus by name, all of the tombs would have been emptied. It's a good thing he said Lazarus, right? That's why he had to mention the specific one, person to rise up. The early eyewitness accounts, for those who are skeptical that, that kind of are not sure what to think about, not sure how to categorize the resurrection, Paul offers these people that saw the risen Jesus. It says Cephas, you know, we know him as Peter primarily in the scriptures, and then the 12, and then the 500, and then James, and then to Paul himself. In other words, and he says these 500 people, if you want to check with them, he says most of them are still alive. So write them a letter or go visit them if you want to know for sure that they, people saw the risen Jesus. There were eyewitnesses. The resurrection accounts give these specific details 
about different things. That If you're going to make up a resurrection to found a new religion upon, you're going to want to be as vague as possible. Don't tell the people where the actual tomb was. You know, don't, don't be real specific. And in these resurrection accounts, there's all these specific details that are mentioned. The grave clothes that are folded up there and, and laying there in the tomb. Like, why mention a detail like that? Well, the reality is if you were trying to steal away the body of Jesus and, and invent this resurrection story, you probably wouldn't go through the trouble of unwrapping the hundreds of pounds of ointment and, and spices and linen cloth that was wrapping up Jesus, that you would probably take all of that with you if you were going to do that. But the reality was that Jesus left those there because he rose again. You know, there's been all, all kinds of, there's so much historical evidence that Jesus was a historical person, that this early Christian movement believed that he rose from the dead. And it's, there are so many examples of this that historians that refuse to, to factor in the supernatural into their accounts of history have to come up with alternate explanations. And there's things like, yeah, they stole the body of Jesus, or maybe they all hallucinated that they saw Jesus, or maybe Jesus was nursed back to health. There's an old pastor named J. Vernon McGee, old Bible teacher, um, that said this. A woman wrote to him and said, Our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? And McGee, who's from Texas, responded this way. He says, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, Run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, then see what happens. Um, Jesus rose from the dead. He, it wasn't this nurse him back to health and to make enough appearances that people thought he was really alive. This was, there was a moment in time where everything changed for these people who up to this point had been Jewish men, women, and children used to worshiping on Saturday and used to worshiping God in this whole temple system. And they rapidly went from this life they had known to now worshiping what many people thought of as just a man, Jesus, worshiping him as God. They saw something. Something, you have to offer some explanation for that amount of rapid change that happened to all of these people. And why did the, the good news of Jesus spread the way it spread so much where it just, the whole Roman Empire, you know, within a couple of hundred years, probably 25% of the millions of people that made up the Roman Empire were followers of Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, it went from 120 followers of Christ, now the Spirit of God has poured out upon them. Peter stands up in front of this crowd where before he was scared of even individuals, now he stands up in front of a crowd of thousands and, and tells them, and the message that he gives them is that you put to death the author of life, but God has raised him up. He's back, and we have seen him. And we want to tell all of you what to do in response to that. So if you reject all of that, if you're if kind of skeptical about the resurrection, you have to come up with an alternate explanation for how the church grew the way it did. You've got to come up with a satisfying... If it's built on a lie, if there's really not a truth there... Well, then what's the story? How did this begin? How did it grow the way it grew? How did thousands of people and then eventually millions of, of people come to Christ in this short amount of time and all the good that was done in God's, God's name, in Jesus' name? Like, what's the, what's the alternate explanation? So I want to say to you that believing in the resurrection is a reasonable belief to hold. And, 
If you don't believe that, the problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is, is something else. And people will often reject the moral teachings of Christianity. They'll, they'll look at something like the Bible and they'll say, listen, I have a hard time with a lot of the stuff in there. Like, I kind of like the idea of Jesus, but I'm not sure about some of the moral teachings about how you're supposed to live and some of the, the, the history things maybe in the Bible or whatever. Listen, that's not a good starting place for you. If you're trying to evaluate what Christians believe, start at the resurrection. If the resurrection did not happen, Paul says it doesn't matter what Christians believe. Like, everything rests on this historical event of Jesus rising from the dead. The Jenga tower falls over if the resurrection block is not there, right? It, this is not a, an, just a sub-basic thing that Christians believe. This is a, this is a foundational aspect. So then, if, you, if the resurrection did happen, then you got to deal with the Bible. Then you got to deal with the moral teachings of Christianity. Evelyn Underhill, a Christian writer from a previous generation, said, The primary declaration of Christianity is not this do, but this happened. This happened. So the rest of our time this morning, moving on from this kind of proofs and the creed that Paul offers, we're going to talk about why the resurrection is not just a belief we think about once a year, but why, what it does for us throughout our lives and through regular everyday life. And to do that, we're going to look back at what Paul was teaching about here. Um, and Paul gives, he does something kind of interesting, interesting where he gives sort of an alternate history. You ever see the alternate histories or books or TV shows that someone will make? Like, what if the U.S. lost the Revolutionary War? You know, and England maintained control over the colonies. Like, what would have happened then? And, or what if Hitler had won World War II? Right? There's all kinds of people that have thought about what that might look like in this kind of alternate history. What if Kennedy, JFK, had not been assassinated? How would events have played out? This is an alternate history thing. Paul does something similar where he says, if Jesus had not been raised, what would have happened? And he gives kind of in this backwards way, he, talks, he speaks to several important concepts that will be important for us as we consider the, the relevance, the power of the resurrection we're going to use these three words to structure the rest of our time together. Freedom, power, and hope. The difference the resurrection makes for us today is freedom, power, and hope. The first one, freedom. Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins. And then he makes clear through his teaching here that if, if Christ did not die for your sins, or if Christ was not risen from the dead, you would still be in your sins. In other words, his resurrection pay, played an irreplaceable part of the salvation process. Right? He says that if not, you are still in your sins. Romans 4.25 describes it that, that we are, we've been, Jesus was crucified for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. That in other words, his resurrection is sort of like the receipt. It's the, the, the proof that the payment went through. Many of you shop at Costco, right? And you, you go and you check out at Costco, and after you pay for your stuff, you push that giant cart towards the exit, and there's a person standing on either side of the exit door, and they want to see something, right? They want you to hand them something. What do they want you to hand them? Your receipt, yeah. And the receipt, of course, proves that you did not steal all that stuff in the giant cart, right? You paid for that, and there's the receipt, and you hand it to them, and they, they do the little swoop 
with the marker on there, or if they're, you know, want to put their personality in it a little bit more, this little smiley face with the highlighter on there, you know, like that one too. But they're showing that it is, you have paid for this. This is proof that you have purchased these items. Payment has been made. Scripture tells us the resurrection is like that, that payment has been made, and the proof is the resurrection that we have been completely forgiven, given a clean slate. This has everything to do with how we live today. This is, that we can no longer be, we no longer have to be slaves to sin. And you don't even need to live in guilt and shame anymore for your past. That if you're a follower of Christ, if Christ has paid the penalty for your sins, which is the offer to everybody, that if, if Christ has paid for our sins, then his, the payment was made, the receipt is the resurrection. He even paid for the guilt and the shame. There's not even any condemnation anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't need to live in guilt and shame. And you don't need to live anymore like you're a slave to sin because Christ freed you from that. You have been given new life. You have been given freedom to live for Jesus now. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, If, you have been, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It's like when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. Our old nature died with him. And then when he was raised, we are raised up to new life. And this new life is fueled by Christ and his resurrection power, which brings us to our next point. The difference the resurrection makes for us today is not only do we have freedom, but we also have power. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 19 to 20, he's praying for this church at Ephesus, and he says, I'm praying, I want you to know something. And we're going to jump in on the middle of his prayer here, but what he's praying for is that he wants them to know experientially this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul's saying, I want you to know personally how powerful God is. The power that he is willing to put into work in your life is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. In this alternate history version he's giving, he says, if Christ had not been raised, then you, your faith is futile. And I love that kind of Star Trek kind of word, you know, resistance is futile. It's, in other words, it's, it's empty, there's no power. There's no substance there. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, it is empty. There's nothing to it. The preaching, the message is futile. It's, it's empty. The faith is futile. But he says, no, 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 no. Christ has been raised. Christ has been raised. And so that means our message has power. That means we can live in a way where we have access to the power of God through the Holy Spirit given to us by the risen Jesus. The risen Jesus continues to do his work here. And I'm so grateful that God's power is available to his followers because my power is super limited. You know, I'll run out pretty quickly of my own ability and strength to like make myself a better person or to like do something lasting for God. I'm going to quickly run out to the end of my resources. But thankfully, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And we can know that more. We can have a relationship with that God more and experience that power that he offers. I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier with this whole uh, 
chronological snobbery thing. I like C.S. Lewis. If you've been coming here for a while, you know I quote him often. Um, C.S. Lewis died on the same day that JFK was assassinated, by the way. So C.S. Lewis's death was, not, not, was overshadowed by the big news of JFK's assassination. My relationship with C.S. Lewis is the way you relate to a dead historical person that died in the 60s, which is that you, have, you can read their writings. They left writings, and so I can... Re- I love his writings, and that's why I mention him often. I think he has just this way with words and puts an idea together in a way that's just like, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. There's great truth there, and so that's why I quote him often. But my relationship with him is, is very limited because it's just these, left, these writings that he's left. And he doesn't know me. I only know him through his writings. With Jesus, it is completely different. It's not some dead historical figure who just left behind some sacred writings It is a living Savior who we walk through life with, who we can have a relationship with, who we can talk to throughout the day and know that he continues to live within us. There was an old song we used to sing in the church I grew up in. Part of the song went like this. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. We can have that kind of relationship with a living Savior who enables us and empowers us to live for him. In addition to all of that, we have hope. We have freedom. We have power. And we've been given hope. Every system of belief in the world tries to answer these deep human needs for what is the meaning of life? What's this all about? Right? Does anything really matter? What, what does all of this mean? And these different systems of thought, these different religious systems offer some answer to those deep human questions. And I think nothing comes close to what the Christian faith has to offer. That it offers a living Savior, and because we have a living Savior, we can say along with the words that we open the service with in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope is alive. And I know what it's like to be suffering from a real deficit of hope and meaning. I know what it's like to live life without God in my life and to have a sense of hopelessness and and the sadness that I felt when I was being really honest about just feeling like something was missing and I needed God in my life. And then I know what it's like to have God as a part of my life and this reserve of hope and peace and meaning that he's given me. In addition to this hope in this life, we have this hope for life after death. Jesus is called the first fruits. In verse 20, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, and then ascension into heaven, has given us a glimpse of what the life to come looks like, and it's an embodied life. I grew tomatoes. My my family had a garden in in our backyard this last year for the first time. And after many years of having a reputation of killing every living thing plant-wise around us. That sounded really bad. Um, not pets. The pets, we don't have pets, but if we did, they'd be fine, I'm sure. We could feed them and keep them alive. 
Um, and our kids, we've done really well with them too, so it's good. But like plants, so bad at growing plants and keeping plants alive of all kinds. And, but this last year, we did it. We had a garden. We had these little raised beds in the back of our yard. And we had tomato starts, you know, that had gone, and we planted them in there. And the day came where we saw the first little tomatoes on those tomato plants. And it was this moment of like, first of all, we're proud of ourselves that we kept it alive, you know, long enough to grow something. But it's like that, those little tomatoes are the first fruits. They're there as an indication of what is coming. If you forgot what the plant was, now you know that's a tomato plant. But it's also, it's like there's more coming. This is the fir- first fruits, and there will be more of them. And Jesus is the first fruits of what life after death looks like. It is a physical, embodied life, and with his resurrection, a whole new thing was unleashed upon the world. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Miracles, says this, he has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Jesus has started something new with his death on the cross and his resurrection, his triumph over that. As a church, we spent the last eight Sundays before today going through the book of Philippians, also written by the Apostle Paul who wrote uh, 1 Corinthians that we were reading. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says something. I want to remind you of that if you were here for that or introduce you to it if you missed that series. In Philippians 3, Paul says, it's this passage where he says, here's what I've given up for the sake of knowing Jesus, and I press on, and I'm willing to give up anything And then he says these words, so we're kind of in the middle of his thought, he gets to verse 10 here, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you were um, putting a list of people together who knew Jesus really well, I would put Paul pretty high on that list. But here he says, there's something where I need to know Jesus more. There's something about him and specifically about his resurrection, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may even share in his sufferings. He says, I want to know Christ more. Sam Albury, who I quoted earlier um, in his book on the resurrection, mentions this passage, this idea of Paul wanting to know Christ more. And he gives a great example of what he thinks that looks like, and I want to share that with you. Sam giving an account of his um, climbing a mountain or hiking up a mountain. He says, The first mountain I ever hiked was a dormant volcano in Kenya's Rift Valley. The heat and altitude combined with my general lack of fitness made it very hard work. The slope was steep, dry, and dusty. I tried to match the steps of the friend just ahead of me on the trail and to delay rewarding myself with a backward look at the deepening view behind me until I'd gained enough height to feel that I'd earned it. Someone on another hike once quoted the line of a poem he'd studied as a kid about mountain walking, every level step a holiday. Halfway up a mountain in the middle of the scorched rift valley, any step that didn't involve pulling myself upwards would have been a holiday indeed. Needless to say, my brain was switched to melodrama mode producing regular reports about my never being able to get to the top, 
too tired, too hot, too far, too unfit. One moment changed all that. A friend who had been further ahead suddenly called down to me. He was still an implausible distance away, but had just reached the rim of the crater. Sam, he shouted down, you are going to love this. It wasn't his words, but the expression on his face that did it for me. He was looking down at the volcano crater spread out before him, a sight celebrated for its breathtaking beauty. He looked stunned and amazed. Right then, I wanted to be seeing what he was seeing. I was suddenly awash with adrenaline and pushed my way up to his position in a matter of minutes. I was rewarded with the most spectacular view I have ever seen in my life. Paul has his eyes on something. What he knows to be ahead of him has filled his horizon, and so he strains toward it with every ounce of strength he can muster. He wants us to follow. We see where his gaze is fixed on the resurrection of the dead, and we too are filled with new ambition. We can begin to see what he is seeing, and so we push on. Listen, the resurrection of the dead is, is not just a historical event we celebrate, although it is that, or a belief that we affirm, although it is that. It is a resource for us today. It, it is... It offers us freedom, offers us power, and offers us hope. As a reminder of the service today, we've got these take-home things for you, that little bookmarks that say rise up on them. And this is made of seed paper. So these, these take-homes, if you plant these, and there's instructions on the back about how to plant it, on the inside there's a, the verse that we um, has kind of been our theme for the Easter service about the living hope of purchased for us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But there's instructions. If you plant this thing, the seeds in that paper will grow and you'll have, you'll have flowers. So it's super, super fun as a take-home here for you. But it's here to remind us of what is on offer that, that not just, you know, we say on this one Sunday, he is risen, he is risen indeed. But what if you said that tomorrow? He is risen. And next week, he, he's still risen. There's still more for you. And Paul is calling the people he's writing to at the church at Philippi, there's more here for you. You want to know Christ more and the power of his resurrection. I'm also aware when we gather for an Easter Sunday that we've got a whole mix of people joining us in person and online and people from all different backgrounds when it comes to faith. And for some of you, um, you, you, you've been following Jesus for a while consistently. For others, there's people seeking. They're not sure where you stand when it comes to a relationship with Jesus. You're curious about faith. You have questions about it. You came here to learn more. I think there's some, some of you that have never put your faith in Jesus and that you need to begin walking with him and receive this gift of salvation. I'm going to offer you an opportunity to do that in a few moments. Others have kind of drifted away faith-wise where I know this has been a unique and challenging season during, um, for our church and it's, been, it's difficult or even impossible for some of you to be here in person. But for some people, it's not just church that you've been gone from, it's faith that you've been gone from. And I think for, for you too, Christ is calling you back, calling you to know him more, calling you home to him. Athanasius was a leader in the early church a few hundred years after Jesus, and he describes Jesus' posture towards people who are pursuing him or seeking him. And he says this, how could he have called us if he had not been crucified? For it is only on the cross that a man dies with arms outstretched. And I love that mental picture of, Je of Jesus calling people to himself, calling all of us to know him more 
calling some of us to begin to know him personally and calling some of us to come back to him after wandering away. Would you pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to take just a moment to give you an opportunity to respond to the gift of salvation being offered by Jesus. Scripture tells us that we begin a relationship with him by grace through faith, that there's nothing that we can do to better ourselves in light of eternity, that we need the gift of salvation, that we cannot earn a place in heaven, we cannot earn his forgiveness, we cannot earn what he's purchased for us. It's simply something we receive. So like we would take a gift on, a, on our birthday from somebody, we, this gift is offered to us, that Jesus is there with arms wide open and offering us himself, and that we simply need to receive it. We need to put our faith in him and begin a relationship with him. And I'm going to pray a little prayer, short prayer, that for some of you might represent putting your faith in Jesus for the first time. And you could wor- use the words that I'm offering And I'm going to pray them right now. Jesus, I'm asking you to save me today. I'm putting my total trust in you. And I want to follow you. Thank you for loving me and dying for me. Help me to understand it more. I'm going to pray for all of us uh, right now. Lord, we thank you for this time of understanding and diving into what we believe about the resurrection and celebrating it. And Lord, I pray that as we consider this and think about the reality of this gift of salvation and the gift of new life, the living hope, Lord, may we live in light of that. May we enjoy the freedom, the power, and the hope that you provide. And Lord, we thank you so much for this time of being together as a people on this Easter Sunday celebrating the resurrection. Bring people home to yourself, Lord. Bring them back into relationship with you. And may all of us just know you more and live this out. We thank you so much for these truths from your word. I pray that you would bless uh, the rest of our Easter Sunday celebrations that some, some are going to. And Lord, may we live in the, re- in the light of the risen Savior and know and, and hold that belief close to our, our thoughts and in our hearts and in our minds today and always. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.